Hello, and welcome to the Stack Overflow podcast, a place to talk all things software and technology. I'm Ryan Donovan, and I'm speaking today with Dr. Jamie Garcia. She's the Senior Manager of Applications and Application Software at IBM Quantum. We're going to talk all about their big 433-qubit quantum computer and and, uh, how it's going to change reality. So good to talk to you today, Jamie. Hello, great to talk to you as well, Ryan. (laughs) So if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into quantum computing. Okay, sure. (laughs) So I am actually a chemist by training. So I hold a PhD in chemistry and did, you know, basically lab work. Came to IBM because I was very interested in some of the material science work that was going on there at the time and, and started doing some research in that space. And during that time, including in my PhD, but also while at IBM, I got to know our computational chemists quite well. I think most experimentalists will tell you if you get a weird outcome of an experiment, one of the first things you need to do is try to figure out why, and that involves a lot of the theory. And so I did a lot of running down the hallway to talk to my computational colleagues to help elucidate what was going on in my flask that I couldn't like actually see. Um, So as a part of that process, got very interested in computation as a whole and the simulation of nature and trying to use uh, computation towards that end. And I think like just from personal experience, realized that there were some real challenges with using classical computers for that. There were certain reactions, for example, we just couldn't look at. I would ask my colleagues and they would tell me it was impossible. And I was like, why? <laughs> like, uh, like what? Can you? Get yeah, an yeah. Actually, some kind of for me, they were surprising examples. But even like small molecules that were really reactive. So you think of like you know mm. radicals, for example, that you uh, that you hear about that cause all sorts of wreak all sorts of havoc in our in our bodies. But also turns out in batteries too, which I was studying at the time. And yeah, we just couldn't, the reaction was so high energy and there was so many um, different things that had to happen with the chemistry that classical computers couldn't model it, even though they were small molecules. So it's just, you know, O2, for example, like size. Anyway, like, so when I was in Yorktown Heights one day walking down the hallway, I saw one of my colleagues had a poster and it had like chemistry on it, which caught my eye because you don't see that all that often at IBM. (laughs) And it turns out that he was using quantum computers to study a certain property of a molecule and it stopped me in my tracks. And I realized this is a whole new tool uh, for chemistry. And so now we've expanded beyond chemistry. Obviously, we are looking at all sorts of different things, but like, I think that was what got me hooked and interested from the very beginning. We've talked to a few folks in quantum computing, but I think it's, it's valuable to kind of get the basics here. Like, what exactly is a qubit? Yeah, so a qubit is essentially our analog to a classical bit. It is, we use at IBM uh, superconducting qubits. Uh, So essentially, you know, these have to be cooled down to like 15 millikelvin. So you may have seen photos of like our big dilution refrigerators um, that cool uh, our qubits down to to that level. 
But yeah, they're, they're made out of superconducting materials. And what you're doing when you're programming a qubit is you're, you're taking the materials properties of those superconductors and, you know, having fixed energy states, you're able to like move electrons into different uh, energy states. And then that basically allows you to, to program a, a quantum computer. One of the biggest challenges is keeping them in those states. And I have a feeling we'll talk about that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, especially since your your material science background, like that seems like that's part of the big part of the ball game. Yeah, but they're fundamentally, you know, it's it's a kind of different beast too because we're we're now using and leveraging quantum mechanics, uh, right, to really, you know, program the qubits and and the quantum computers and and be able to perform algorithms on them. So it's it's a it has a different flavor to it than a classical bit. In fact, you can use things, quantum mechanical properties such as superposition and entanglement, which is, those are like new knobs to turn when you're, when you're thinking about algorithms. And so it's, um, you know, in many ways and in certain instances, complementary to classical devices, but it, it really is, it's a, a whole new thing and, and a new area to explore. So talking about the, the qubits, I heard that qubits aren't exactly stable that you know you have them super cooled and they're trying to keep them in this this particular state you need a lot of redundancy and error correction right to produce that one qubit so uh yeah so qubits generally speaking right like what what we're doing when we're programming a quantum computer is we're taking the qubits that are laid out on a chip so they'll be put on a chip in a certain array and you'll have, you know, whatever number it is of that. So right now we're still in, in like single chip tech, you know, regime when we're talking about, you know, 433 qubits or, you know, less uh, 27 qubits or five qubits. What that is, is it's, it's all on one chip, right? And so when you program them, what you're, what you're doing, and a lot of times we, we leverage uh, two qubit gates where you need to entangle two qubits together. So you kind of like you know, set it up and map it, your circuit onto the qubits in a very uh, specific way in order to get out Mm. an answer that makes sense. Now, the stability piece that you're referring to, like qubits are inherently sensitive. Mm -hmm. We have to cool the qubits that we use down to 15 millikelvin because of exactly what you said. You're trying to basically hold the qubit in this state for as long as possible so you can run the calculation that you need to run. And basically, you have enough time to like perform the gate operations that you uh, that you need for your circuit. So they're susceptible to noise. Sometimes we know where that noise comes from, and sometimes we don't. When we think about how we put the qubits and arrange them on the chip, we're doing it in a way that minimizes noise most of the time. So we use a, what's called a heavy hex, you know, architecture, where essentially what that does is limits the crosstalk between qubits. So that you minimize the noise, so that you're able to, you know, have as long coherence as times as possible to be able to to run the circuits that you want, so that you can, you know, do a practical calculation, like meaning, you know, within hours, not in a lifetime kind of thing. But we've also like developed a lot of other techniques to manage mm-hmm. the noise, and you know, this includes. Uh, Certainly, like error correction is something that, you know, our teams are working towards and developing out the theory for, you know, certain error correction that will include 
having a fault tolerant kind of uh, device available mm-hmm. and like error rates low enough that we can actually run some of those codes. But we're also looking at error mitigation, which leverages classical mm-hmm. post-processing methods and sort of is able to capture the noise, regardless of whether we know where it comes from or not, but to be able to account for the noise and then correct for it so that we can get out as accurate results as maybe even in an error corrected regime. So there's active research ongoing and then also software uh, tools that are being developed so that we can leverage these techniques as they are developed in real time and then use them for our applications research and running algorithms and circuits that are interesting to us. That post-processing, does it use a sort of statistical methods? Does it use machine learning or is it something else? So uh, one of the things that we've recently put out and you can actually access through Kiskit Runtime is something called probabilistic error cancellation. You run a circuit and then you run like the inverse of the parts of the circuit and you effectively are able to kind of learn where the noise is that way. And then the post-processing set, it divides it into, you know, smaller circuits and you're able to like basically pull it all back together and account for the noise. So there's opportunities, I would say, for, you know, machine learning, certainly, and and thinking about how AI and quantum intersect is a, another thing that we're thinking very seriously about, especially since we just announced mm-hmm. our, uh, you know, system two kind of the plans for that. And you can see these, you know, quantum centric, you know, super con- computer type of uh, arrays and, and things of that nature. So yeah, we're thinking very carefully about like how all these things will play together and where AI can help quantum or quantum can help AI, you know, and what that uh, looks like in particular. So I know there's, it's not a, you know, hard equivalence, but what's sort of a rough equivalence of the 433 qubits to like classically? Yeah, that's a, I mean, it's a tough question to answer, right? Like, Um, So we think of the qubits in terms of, you know, states, right? And so I think that if you just do like a rough, like back of the envelope type of calculation, people will usually say it's like two to the N. So like two to the 433 is a lot, huge, Mm -hmm. (laughs) huge. So, you know, in fact, I think, uh, you know, if you do two to 275, that's like the cutoff for like, you know, that's the number that is like more than atoms of the in the universe kind of style, right? So it's absolutely massive. But there's a lot of like, you know, nuance that that goes into that. And especially when we're talking about actually programming a quantum computer and using it to like look at a like chemistry problem or a problem in finance or anything like that. And in addition to that, you have to, of course, take into account the noise that you have presence in right. this, uh, present in the system. So it's hard to say like about what the computing power is of like a device today that has 433 qubits. If you project out and think of, you know, someday we have error rates that are as close to zero as, as possible, then that's where you start talking about this like two to the N and like harnessing the mm-hmm. power of the universe and like, you know, all these things. <laughs> but that's the idea, right? And that's like what we're going for and the potential uh, that it brings, you know, to us in terms of like compute. Mm-hmm. So that's about what we're aiming for. And that uh, two to the N is is computations per... Cycle. It's states, right? So it's it's basis states. So if you look at like 
you can use some of uh, the examples of just like molecules, for example. So like water might use somewhere around 14 qubits. Um, we've actually mm -hmm. shown and demonstrated that you can use much less. You can do it with uh, some of these techniques I've been talking about. You can do it on five qubits. But regardless, if you have like 14 qubits, then that's like 10 to the four classical bits, right? So okay. you can kind of calculate it out that way. But again, there's a lot of nuance here, including we need to carefully consider the types of problems that quantum uh, will be good for. And it's not necessarily like all the same problems that you can think of classical being good for. So I think uh, that's my caveat, but, but it kind of gives you a rough idea. And that's a uh, fantastic lead into the, uh, the next questions. I've read about uh, some, some uh, crypto algorithms trying to be quantum safe and things like Shor's algorithm being lightning fast for prime factorization and sort of being uniquely suited to quantum mm -hmm. computing. Can you talk about why that is? Well, yeah. I mean, so again, Shor's, Shor's is an algorithm that is in that sort of long-term error-corrected regime, right? That you would, you would need to use error correction for it. And a lot of the famous algorithms that you've heard of that show uh, what we refer to as being exponential speed up uh, with quantum computers, mm -hmm. typically what we're talking about are in that regime. And so mm -hmm. there's there's some algorithms that are famous um, as well for like chemistry, like phase estimation, quantum phase estimation, Shor's algorithms, Grover's. Um, so you can think of, you know, ones that you've probably heard of needing to have that error correction kind of piece. That said, you know, as I mentioned, we're, we're doing a lot to bring bring algorithms uh, closer to near-term and error mitigation and maybe even error mitigation combined with error correction in these early days mm -hmm. will allow us to start solving problems that I don't think like we would have thought that we would have been able to solve before, right? Um, or as early mm -hmm. as, as this. And so, yeah, so Shor's algorithm definitely, again, like, leverages quantum devices that have these sort of ancilla qubits. Um, so it would be in general, when you think of like the back of a envelope calculation for, for what you would need to be able to run Shor's algorithm or crack RSA or something like that, you'll see numbers that are in the millions of qubits, just to give you an idea, because you have to account for that overhead that, that comes with the error correction. But, you know, the asterisk is we're doing things earlier than we thought. And so I think that that's part of the reason that we're talking about quantum safe now is that it's, right. it's, we don't know when things will come, like what the timeline is exactly, but we do have, you know, sort of methods to address this that are available today. And so, you know, for example, on our systems, uh, Z, they are quantum safe systems already, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's, Definitely something to start considering now, even though like if you had asked me the same question like two years ago, I, I would have just been like, yeah, that's like, that's so far away. I don't even know. And now I'm right. like, mm, well, <laughs> actually, maybe. <laughs> start planning now. Start planning now. Yeah. <laughs> so we talked about the prime factorization. We talked about the um, molecule simulation. What uh, What are some other sort of tasks and applications that quantum computing is, is uniquely suited to? Yeah. So we, we think about it in like three big buckets. Um, so the simulation of nature is one of them. So that includes, it's not just molecular simulations, but also like physics fall into this category. Material science uh, falls into this category. 
Um, so there, there's a lot of richness there um, and just sort of the simulation of nature as a whole. And you can think of this as being a, a, a space that's interesting because in some ways, you know, nature is quantum mechanical by, by virtue. And so if you are then leveraging a device that is also quantum mechanical, there's some like real, like obvious connection there. But in addition to that, you know, there's been theoretical kind of proofs um, that that show that we think that there should be at least like more than polynomial speed up possible with using quantum computers to look at uh, certain problems such as uh, dynamics, such as like energy states, ground states and things of that nature that fall into this category. The second category is basically like generally, you know, mathematics and processing data with complex structure. So this is where quantum machine learning comes in. You know, we talked about uh, shores and factoring. That's where, where it fits into this category. You know, like shores, there's algorithms that have been shown or, or precise uh, things that have been shown for quantum machine learning as well that imply that there should be an exponential speed up possible in certain cases there as well. So, you know, generally speaking, we try to focus on, on like these two areas in particular, we think hold a lot of promise because they do have this like greater than polynomial potential associated with them for using a quantum computer. So it's a real obvious, those are really obvious areas to look at. And then in addition to that, the, the last category is search and optimization. So Grover's uh, kind of falls into this category. And these are areas that we don't necessarily have those theoretical like proofs yet that there could be, you know, mm-hmm. super polynomial uh, speed up or greater than polynomial or exponential speed up. But we know that there that it promises probably somewhere around quadratic, but maybe more. You know, we're still re- researching and looking, and so you never know what you're going to find. So we also have you know research in this area as well. And then you know, in addition to that, there are certain algorithms like amplitude estimation and amplification that we think could act as like accelerators for the other two areas that I talked about. So it's regardless of what kind of speed up, we would expect that it could still help you know, in these other areas as well. So you can imagine the, like, it's almost two to the N number of use cases (laughs) 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 that like map onto those areas. It encompasses a Mm -hmm. lot, a lot of different things we can look at and a lot of different uh, areas that we're exploring with partners and coupling it and tying it to like things that are really valuable and hard classically. I mean, that's key, right? If something's really mm-hmm. easy classically, like then you know you, you could argue like why look at you know quantum for it. So something that's hard classically and where we think that quantum can can lend some kind of advantage or some kind of speed up in the long run, those are the areas that that we're exploring. Speaking of hypothetical use cases, have you seen the TV show Devs? <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> what was the use case? <laughs> simulating the past and future oh my goodness okay <laughs> well there is prediction right <laughs> i'm sure i mean simulating nature yeah right? <laughs> no it's not that far off <laughs> oh no <laughs> so i know um you all are helping uh, other people process uh, quantum jobs right within their sort of cloud workloads are there any adjustments that you need to make to their their algorithms or data to be suitable for quantum computing? Yes. Um, so the algorithms, 
again, it depends on how you want to to use quantum computers, right? So a lot of our discussions are around like, again, like as we're pointing to like the next generation of these quantum centric uh, supercomputing centers and and. Uh, where you really have like classical HPC, perhaps, you know, next to a, a quantum uh, device and like, how do you best lab, uh, leverage the workloads between those? So I think like there, there's a lot of things that we've been thinking about in terms of like how you ideally um, would situate a like going in with a problem. How would you set it up in such a way that you have like the right parts of the problem being addressed classically and then other pieces, perhaps, uh, with a quantum computer. That's part of it. But the algorithms that that we do uh, and the circuits that we run are, you know, inherently different uh, from, you know, a classical. So again, it, it really comes down to like how you divvy up the problem and, and which pieces you want to, you know, put where. Mm-hmm. So I think that's at a very high level what would need to be taken into consideration and also, you know, something to point out here, too, is that, you know, quantum computers aren't big data type of devices. And so that's another area that, you know, again, like we think that there's a lot to be done from the classical standpoint. But if you want to look at something that has a high complexity, high interconnectivity, or, you know, like is essentially like by virtue uh, dynamic, like... Those are the kinds of things that that the quantum uh, computer handles really well. So, but yes, yeah, so it you know if you were to run something on a quantum computer, you want to make sure that it's the right circuit that's going into it and algorithm that you're using. Is there anything else you wanted to cover that we didn't talk about? Well, I I mean I just think you know in general thinking about the different use cases and the different areas is really important to do as a field, right? So it's not just us, but rather like, you Mm -hmm. know, this is a very multidisciplinary area and we need to have folks Mm -hmm. that are coming from all points of view. So like, you know, whether it's software development, engineering, you know, architects and thinking, you know, even that are on sort of the class, more of the classical side, learning about quantum and bringing that lens has really like pushed us forward in a truly unique way for this field. And I think it's, it just has to do with the fact that it's an emerging area. And so it's, it's all hands on deck and we're all kind of learning together. Thank you very much for for talking with me today. And Hopefully, you can uh, crack the code and simulate everything at all at once. (laughs) Well, thank you. (laughs) As we often do at the end of the show, uh, we're going to give a shout out to someone on the Sacroflow community who dropped some knowledge that was uh, useful for folks. Today, we're shouting out a stellar question badge awarded to Dimitri Z. How can I use environment variables in Docker Compose? Well, if you're wondering the same thing, uh, check out the show notes and uh, you can find out. Thank you all for listening today. I've been Ryan Donvan. I edit the blog, put together the newsletter here at Stack Overflow. You can find the Stack Overflow blog at stackoverflow.blog. You can find me on Twitter at rthordonovan. And if you liked what you heard today, please drop a like or subscribe. It really helps.